Welcome to episode number 26 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, where we're building a global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust. Today's interview is with Mark Hodap, Senior Fire Protection Engineer at Jensen Hughes, based out of Baltimore, Maryland. In this interview, we're talking about different types of dust hazard analysis. So what are the traditional approach to dust hazard analysis, including a prescriptive approach? Um, what can you do when the prescriptive approach can't be implemented, in, say, in an older facility, or there's difficulties um, meeting those, those guidelines or engineering guidelines or regulations? Um, in this case, you can move to a risk-based DHA approach. Uh, and Mark really spends a lot of time going through that process, understanding quantitative risk models, understanding qualitative risk models, some of the performance-based design criteria, gives some recommendations on resources in this area, and gives some success stories of how this has been applied to uh, make facilities safe and to also do things like risk ranking, understanding what priorities should be in different facilities. And overall, it gives a really good overview of this, this whole process of the different types of dust hazard analysis. Towards the end, we, we actually get into some discussion kind of back and forth on some of the challenges that, that maybe I've seen with quantitative models and just that you really do need to, to have an idea in what the prescriptive approach is saying so you have something to check back on your quantitative model. Does it make sense? Do the numbers that you're, you're getting um, make sense with reality? It's kind of like I, I mentioned in the, the interview, it's kind of like when you're taking a, a physics test in high school. You want to check your answer at the end of the day to make sure it, it makes sense with the questions that were asked. Same with combustible dust. When you're doing these quantitative models, you just want to make sure that the, the approaches that you're using are also coinciding with what you'd see from, from other approaches. And, and Mark has a lot of great input on that. And he talks a lot about the, the models that they've been building at Jensen Hughes, and how those are helping facilities all over the United States in implementing their DHAs more effectively and, and increasing their safety overall. So as always, I, I really appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and I know you're really going to learn a lot from this interview with Mark. Welcome to episode number 26 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Today's interview, we're talking with Mark Hodap, Senior Fire Protection Engineer at Jensen Hughes, based out of Baltimore, Maryland. Mark, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Chris. Um, appreciate the opportunity to... to Join the podcast and uh, speak with you today. Awesome. So today's topic will be talking about different types of dust hazard analysis. Mark has over ten years' experience as a fire protection engineer. We were just chatting before the we press record. He's he thinks he's done over three hundred dust hazard analysis, so he has a lot of experience. We covered this topic a bit before with different episodes. In episode seven with Ashok Dasadar, we talked about the steps to doing a DHA. Talked to some of the challenges in defining qualified person with Jason Reason in episode 12. We talked about fire prevention and explosion prevention and protection applications with Jill Plourd, episode 16. Um, but with, with Mark's background, the number of DHAs he's done, the experience he has, I really want to jump into the different types that are involved. And you'll hear things like traditional types of DHAs, prescriptive versus risk-based. What are some of the option, other options that might be available when when those those can't be met, and that's kind of one of Mark's areas of expertise, so he'll be able to share a lot there. What's the difference between performance-based design and risk analysis? Um, what are some of the advantages of using some of these different methods, like quantitative risk models, and what are some of the successes that Mark's seen so far? So kind of by way of, of getting started, Mark, um, can you just explain a bit about your current role with Jensen Hughes and what that looks like? Sure. So um, my current role at Jensen Hughes is um, I'm a senior. My title is a senior fire protection engineer, um, and, and I do do multiple things. Uh, but kind of my primary role 
as it currently stands, is, is um, I'm one of the senior members of our combustible dust team. So uh, myself, uh, Martin Cloutier, who I know you've spoken with before, um, we kind of oversee a couple teams. We've got other groups as well. Um, but we're, we're really kind of the uh, senior technical leads on the combustible dust side. On the other end of the house, I, I still am involved in fire protection engineering. And uh, where I got my start uh, when I first joined Jensen Hughes about 10 years ago was in the field of performance-based design. So I've done a lot of performance-based design in the fire protection end of things and the end of things. And I think that, that gives me some of the background I have to be able to apply you know, kind of those alternate methods in combustible dust. And it also gives me some background as to where the differences are and, and why some of these other methods can come into play. About six years ago or so, I um, got very heavily involved in combustible dust. Um, and, and kind of since that time, that's been really my primary focus. So I do that. I tell people I do that about 100% of the time in fire protection engineering, 50% of the time <laughs> on top of that. So certainly staying busy. Certainly. So in terms of the, the dust hazard analysis, then maybe we'll jump right in with the with just describing I think we, we call them the traditional DHAs, traditional dust hazard analysis. So this is prescriptive and maybe risk-based. What what does that mean? Can you just lay the groundwork for the, the listener on on what a traditional DHA might look like? Sure. So you know, I think in, in talking about the, the terminology of traditional versus risk-based, uh, I'm sure you're aware the the guidelines for combustible dust hazard analysis, the CCPS published a little while back. Um, they define those two terms, and I think it's a good way of binning kind of the two different traditional, if you will, ways of, of doing a dust hazard analysis. As we talked about before the call, you know, I, I started doing combustible dust hazard analyses a little bit on the later end of compared to some folks, but uh, still back before an FPA 652 came out, and it was actually a somewhat defined methodology for a dust hazard analysis. Um, but kind of following that framework in NFPA 652, and what's in the CCPS guidelines, there's really kind of two traditional bins of this hazard analysis. So the, you know, the prescriptive approach, uh, if you will, really involves, and there's, there's, you know, core, core similarities in both methods that, that are pretty much apply to all dust hazard analyses. And that's really that you're evaluating the material hazards, the building hazards, you know, what the properties of the materials are, what's going on in the building, and what's going on inside the equipment that's handling or producing combustible dust. And you're looking at those areas, you're taking a systematic approach through them, regardless of what method you're using. It's going to very closely mirror uh, more traditional process hazard analysis, um, where you're breaking things down and kind of looking at things systematically. So that's going to be the same in either either type of DHA. I think the main difference is in a prescriptive type DHA, what you're really doing, what you really should be doing, in, in our opinion, is going through and identifying where you've actually got credible hazards. And, and where you do have hazards, then you're making recommendations to manage those hazards in accordance with the prescriptive requirements outlined in the NFPA standards, other industry best practices, but essentially you're closing those gaps um, by following the industry standard of care, which is in the NFPA standards, prescriptive in nature. When you take the risk-based approach, you're looking at it similarly, but the difference being that you're also applying a risk component to it. And I've seen this done in, in several ways. We've done it in several different ways. Where I think that method 
provides the most most benefit is in terms of risk ranking and prioritization and identifying where you really should be putting your resources to manage the hazard. So there's qualitative methods or there's other semi-quantitative methods that, that we've used and others have used to kind of step through and look at where your existing safeguards are and, and what's missing to be able to identify where your risks are and, and, and uh, make recommendations for closing those gaps to address your greatest risk. So I'm going to summarize a, a bit of that because you said a lot of a lot of good things in there to outline this traditional DHA. So so the first one I, I I made a note by is the you mentioned a book which is guidelines for combustible dust hazard analysis that was put out by the CPS, um, and I, I would recommend that to anyone that's that's interested in understanding DHAs more. It really lays things out. It's not a single author. It's actually has a list of about twenty authors and and maybe twenty reviewers. So they really went through and, and came up with how to go about doing a, a prescriptive DHA and, and a risk-based DHA. And they have some examples in the book. So I, I actually, I've shot a video review of that book, but it hasn't been released yet. But it's, uh, it's a very good book. So we'll include that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 26. Um, you mentioned there's some common themes in all hazard analysis and then some common themes in all dust hazard analysis. Dust hazard analysis, getting the properties of your dust, including flammability, combustibility properties, uh, whether or not it, it's a ignition risk, um, different things like that is, is, a, is a key element of both. That's something we did cover with Marion Cluche, uh, who's also a, a member of the combustible dust team at Jensen Hughes. And we did that in episode 21 of the podcast. And then we, we kind of went down the road of, of traditional DHA. So I think I've already mixed things up a bit. I said traditional DHA some people call a prescriptive DHA the traditional approach. In, in my mind, I've heard that. And then um, from what we're talking about today, I've, I've also called the, the traditional approach as prescriptive and risk-based. I'm not sure that's quite the right naming. Has that, that been your experience that traditional is really the prescriptive and then risk-based is a different approach? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably the best way to break it down. Okay. Yeah, then I'll, I just want to clarify that so I didn't confuse um, myself and the and the listeners. So traditional DHA is really prescriptive and then risk-based is an alternative to that. And you can do qualitative risk-based approaches and you can do quantitative where you're actually coming up with numerical numbers and we'll, we'll get into that. So I guess we've already kind of jumped the gun a bit on, on the question, but I'll, I'll say it again so that maybe we'll give you a chance to even go a little deeper. If the prescriptive requirements, so if, you, if uh, NFPA, whichever standard you're trying to follow and trying to do the prescriptive approach to those can't feasibly be implemented then what are our options moving forward and i, th- I think risk base is one of those but can you dive into that a bit yeah and that's really what i was hoping to spend the majority of time talking about i think one thing that we've seen and i'm sure others who are out there doing these have seen is you know, there's this requirement now retroactive requirements to go out and do these dha so we're getting a lot of calls to, to go out and do DHAs for companies trying to get ahead of that or stay on top of it. But we're doing a large number of DHAs and a large number of, you know, a large number of our DHAs are multi-site DHAs. So we have a client that has 50, 100, you know, 200, 300 facilities, and you're going out and trying to start pulling these DHAs together. And one thing you find is you're going into existing facilities. In a lot of cases, they are designed, you know, 50 plus years ago or, you know, or, or more recently and just weren't aware of, of what the standards were or are um, at the time. 
and you find a lot of gaps, whether you take a, a traditional DHA approach or you find a risk-based approach, you're going to find a lot of gaps pretty much any, anywhere you go. And the problem becomes, especially in existing facilities, sometimes the prescriptive requirements can't be feasibly Im- implemented. Either there's not a, a, a prescriptive requirement that addresses that particular hazard or that particular equipment, or what's most common, you're you're going through a DHA and coming up with a list of 100 recommendations and you multiply that by 100 different sites, you've got a, an owner end user sitting there looking at the bill for that and going, there's no way <laughs> we're going to be able to implement all these recommendations, you know, uh, right away. This is a very, this is a long process. I've even had some clients say, you know, it's, it'd be cheaper for us to build a new facility than implement all these recommendations. Those are kind of extreme cases, but there there is a financial aspect of this that's a reality. Well, and there's a time-based aspect as well. You can't do everything tomorrow, <laughs> even if the capital was not a an issue. You need to choose which one to do first, regardless. Exactly, exactly. And then at the same time, you know, you, you've got you know you've got companies wanting to do the right thing, and they want to keep their employees and facilities safe, and that's kind of where they're looking for for the added guidance. And that's where, you know, there's alternate methods of, of achieving compliance and addressing some of those real-world constraints. And the two that are outlined in the NFPA standards are your performance-based design option, and there's also a risk analysis option. And I was hoping to talk mostly about the risk analysis option today, um, but I think, you know, there's certainly uh, pros and cons to each and, and good applications for one versus the other, depending on what you're coming across. And a lot of times, um, using one of those two methods allows you to either greatly reduce costs, speed up the, the time for implementation, and address something that's really not a critical risk, and, and basically allow, you know, the, the companies to get into compliance quicker, uh, make their facilities safer faster and reduce the capital expenditures required to do that. Okay, so I think we'll we'll spend most of our time on the the risk analysis approach, but do you is there just a, a quick summary of performance based um, what that might be and then we'll then we'll dig into the the risk analysis side? Sure, I think you know, in my mind the biggest the biggest difference between the two is that the performance based framework which in the combustible dust standards which interestingly enough is set up almost as an exact mirror of what's in, you know, the fire codes and, and the, the different standards for fire protection out there is really sent, set up to evaluate fire and explosion scenarios, show that over the, the, the world of the possible scenarios or kind of, you know, over the possible scenarios that people aren't exposed to untenable, untenable conditions and they can get out or the building's not irreparably damaged or you, you can show that ignition has been prevented. And then there's a requirement to basically uh, confirm that in light of all uncertainty and, and safety factors that are applied. In doing this in fire protection, that's a, a practice that's been established for a long time. There's excellent analytical tools out there, and you're dealing with a phenomenon that happens a lot slower than an explosion. So I can do a detailed fire model of a, of a building. I can put it in the worst credible fire that anyone could con- conceive, and I can show that everyone can get out of the building with a, a factor of safety of five. And I can document that and have a great basis for it. It's a lot harder to do that in combustible dust. It's not impossible, but it's a lot harder. So I think the applications where performance-based design is most commonly used in combustible dust is where you're looking at specific applications. Like I have this valve, for example, 
I can't use a closed clearance rotary valve because I have material jams. Can I go with a, a you know a wider vein valve body clearance? There's testing for that. That's a pretty straightforward performance-based design to support it. And it becomes a lot harder if you're trying to do complete systems, complete buildings. And I honestly have not seen that very frequently implemented and, and strictly kind of follow the guidelines that are in the NSPA standards there. Okay. So it sounds like for the performance base, you may get away with it for individual pieces of equipment, but for a full kind of facility DHA, um, it would be, it would be challenging to, to say the least. Yeah. So then let's move into the, the risk analysis based approach. What's the, um, kind of background there that the, the listener needs to know? Well, I think the, you know, and I, and I think one thing that's important to point out and that we've seen between kind of a risk-based DHA and a risk analysis is the way that the NFPA standards are set up and the way they're incorporated by reference by the fire code, those provisions of the NFPA standards effectively become law. And similar to a fire code, you know, if it says you need two stairwells in the building and you only want to have one, you've got to go through a pretty rigorous analysis and get AHA approval to get that approved, you can't just go put one stairwell in the building when the code says you need two. Um, one thing that I would caution our listeners on in a risk-based DHA is if you're going through, especially doing something like a qualitative risk ranking and saying you don't need any protection, especially if that's not something that's approved by an AHJ, there's a liability there, both for you and the end user. I think, in my mind, the distinction between a risk-based DHA and a risk analysis is not that you can't do both, but in the, looking at risk analysis as an alternative, the idea is that you're going through a thorough analysis to make a case to the authority having jurisdiction that you can achieve an acceptable level of risk with the approach that you're pursuing. And I think that's the key distinction between performance-based and risk analysis. On performance-based design, you're saying you're meeting the objectives, you're showing that that works for all scenarios. Perform uh, Risk analysis, you're showing you achieve an acceptable level of risk. And I think when you're, when you're looking at a lot of the 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 bulk solids handling equipment and applications, especially where loss history would show that you don't have a lot of losses there, you're looking at a lot of scenarios where it's not that an explosion could never happen or no one could ever get hurt. You're looking at scenarios where a lot of things need to go wrong and line up perfectly and someone needs to be there and it needs to happen just so to have a serious incident. And a risk analysis allows you to evaluate that in detail and discern where you have that type of application versus something that is truly high risk that warrants, you know, uh, additional protection measures. Okay, that's a that's a good overview, and I think it help the helps the listeners understand. Um, you mentioned qualitative a couple times, and then quantitative risk models. Um, what's the what's the breakdown between between those? So. Qualitative is, is you're, you're evaluating risk based on uh, some type of a, a bidding. So a lot of a lot of folks will use a numerical scale or a risk matrix, um, like a one through five likelihood, one through five severity. And, and there's different ways to look at it, either on a risk matrix or by some numerical uh, addition of, of the numbers. But you're basically kind of looking at risk as a bin. Is it high? Is it medium? Is it low? And there's certainly good ways to do that are good applications for doing that. It is, it is less time intensive. Um, but what it, what it is also is more subjective. If you assembled, you know, a group of five people at one plant and sit down with five different people at another plant, you know, they may rank, rank something as low risk. Somebody else may rank something at medium risk. 
And you also get, you also don't have a lot of resolution in your results. So if you look at applying the safeguards, if we're going to add explosion venting here and isolation, you know, it, you, it may not be enough of a resolution between a one and a two to really show you that you've moved, moved the needle all that much. Quantitative, you're, you're applying something like a fault tree analysis. Um, event tree analysis, and you're quantifying probabilities and frequencies associated with the events, which results in a number. And if you compare that number to a quantitative risk acceptance criteria, risk tolerability criteria, it allows you to, to define you know, pretty clear-cut lines and allows you to see exactly where you are on the risk spectrum, which gives you a lot of resolution. Okay. And that, that sort of makes sense. I think a lot of time when when people hear about quantitative risk assessment um, and fault tree analysis and and maybe bow tie and these different approaches, they may they may get lost in the concept. So it may be helpful to to go through maybe an example of a successful implementation, or it can be a generalized example of something that you've seen. But where where quantitative risk has really helped the client move forward, do you have any examples that we might be able to kind of walk through of that? I do, I do, and we've been doing a lot of this lately and we've actually developed some automated tools for, for doing these that we've developed specifically for some of our clients to allow them to run some of these type of analyses on their own very consistently and, and repeatedly. We did an analysis, we've done several recently, but the one I'll talk about is a, a client that has large number of sites, gone through and done a lot of DHAs, and they basically came back and said, all right, we've done all these DHAs. We found that we've got a number of systems that are don't meet prescriptive requirements, um, but compared to everything else we're doing across our enterprise, we feel that these are much lower risk. Uh, we don't have a lot of loss history with this equipment, and the cost to protect this equipment would be dispro- disproportionately high. Um, and quite frankly, you know, we... We need a solid basis for determining what we need to do here. Um, And we'd like to put our resources to address what we feel are greater hazards. So the challenge with that was there was a need to look at several hundred of of these types of systems. And and really, the desire was not to do nothing. It was to apply, apply capital where it provided the best risk reduction. So what we ultimately ended up doing for these systems is we developed quantitative risk models that were based on the parameters of the system. So, if, you know, for example, it was a, a, one of the systems was a, a typical pneumatic starch silo and, and pneumatic conveying system. So what we found is when you develop the risk model, the factors that come that come into play are you know the, your pipe diameter, your pipe lengths, the rate that you're filling, the airflow in your pipes how frequently the areas are occupied, whether the equipment's located indoors or outdoors, um, whether there's existing protection measures on the equipment, explosion venting, isolation, those type of things. And what we were able to do is develop risk models that allowed you to calculate risk quantitatively based on those various inputs. Um, And we worked with them to establish risk acceptance criteria, which is based on industry industry standards and loss data, so it's defensible. It's not that it was there. the company saying it was okay. It was reflecting that industry and society defines this risk as being broadly acceptable. 
Um, and what that allowed us to do is that allowed us to go through and evaluate risk at a large number of the facilities very quickly. Um, and what that allowed us to do is have quantitative assessment of risk and to be able to pinpoint the safeguards that were ultimately really reducing risk, those that were making very little contribution, and also to be able to find out which systems were already very low risk and did not need um, any additional mitigation. Um, so that's one of the benefits of being of using a quantitative tool is I could use it, and one of my colleagues could use it, they could use it, and because we were able to define all the inputs as being um, you know, subjective, measurable data, in theory, anyone should be able to go out and get the same result. Yeah, thank you for that overview. I think it, it really helps kind of lay some of that groundwork so people can probably feel a little more comfortable when they do have consultants come in and, and try to help them in this way, but also just the, the people that are involved, um, maybe on the equipment side and different sides to understand. I do, I, I do want to mention kind of a couple notes that are really some of, some of my thoughts on this, just hearing you talk through it, and, and then maybe we'll uh, we kind of circle back to just some of your thoughts on it and uh, before closing up. But so a, a couple of things like um, for quantitative risk analysis, when when we're getting these numbers and generating these numbers, there's a there's a couple of things that I, I want to sort of highlight. And this is again, this is my personal opinion, um, not necessarily the opinion of the industry, not necessarily the opinion of any standards makers, and certainly not necessarily the opinion of Mark. But things like absence of loss history and and kind of coming up with qualitative quantitative low, low numbers I, I think this approach should be applied in borderline cases if you're operating a facility where you have knee-deep dust the quantitative methodology is not going to work for you <laughs> in the sense like if you're operating a an imperial sugar refinery at the time of the large-scale explosion or something like that I, th- I think these methods should be only really applied after we've made the first cut approach of, okay, have we, have we even done anything to make this safe? And then the other thing I want to just kind of mention is there's some, also some other things you can do. Like if you don't need workers in an unsafe area, even if they're there at low frequency, or maybe you could shut down the equipment when they are there, there are some sort of inherent things that are inherently safer to do than to, to come up with a numerical number. So maybe on, on that thought, Mark, are there any things that you see that you're like, this is if we added a quantitative number to it, it would just be one. <laughs> like that's kind of causing an issue. Well, well, yes, exactly. And I, and I think this is so. I I completely agree with your. I completely agree with your assessment that this is not something you just dive right into. Um, and that's why I'm I'm a strong advocate for your first step being a traditional DHA that allows you to go in and quickly identify where you've got the greatest problems and start working on them right away. If you walk into a facility and you're knee-deep in pieces of dust, it doesn't take a risk analysis to tell you that you got a problem, right? So I totally agree with that. Now, the other thing I, I, I want to just point out is that in combustible dust you know, handling operations, there's not the same type of loss data that there is in like the nuclear industry where everything's tabulated. When we do our analyses, that's not the type of data we're pulling. But what you can do is you can develop your, your probabilities and frequencies based on the system parameters. Well, for example, if you've got a system that is a um, you know uh, not only dense phase, for example, take a dense phase conveying system. When it's under steady state operation, there's too dense of a concentration to be explosive, right? So the only time you're going to have that is when you first start it off or first shut it down. Well, you can quantify how many, how many hours in a given day 
it's running in steady state versus starting up and shutting down that gives you your probability for an explosive concentration. So there's a lot of things that you're not pulling from tabulated data. If you look at these systems, that can be calculated out. And the other thing is, if you set it up, so the way we've done it, for example, is one of the key things we look at is what the secondary consequences could be. So one thing that we built in our risk models is the potential for a uh, you know a secondary explosion where you have something propagating back into a building. So if you have equipment outside that doesn't have explosion isolation, and you've got horrendous housekeeping and future dust problems indoors, our risk model will pretty much tell you you've got you know you're gonna you you might actually kill somebody several times per year versus being you know one in a million type of of an event. So that's one of the things that was kind of cool about about this approach is when we actually went out to apply it. Um, you know, we went into some facilities where we were like, oh, you know, I'm a little bit nervous to be walking around here. And then you put the risk numbers to it. And you're like, yeah, well, no, this is a one in 10 year type event facility versus one where you walk into and, and everything's looking good and and uh, very well cleaned, the equipment's well protected or set up and operated in an inherently safe way. And then the risk model showing you your, you know, one in a million, uh, you know, type event. So we actually saw a very good correlation, you know, the way we set it up with real world conditions versus what the number was coming out to be. Yeah, and I actually like that. That's probably the maybe the the concluding statement on on some of my comments and then some of your comments is you should then it's 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 like when you're writing a math test or a physics test in university or high school, right? You don't just write the answer down and then go, oh, okay, well, the water was going ten thousand meters a second, or you gotta think and say, Does this answer make sense? And and a good thing to do would be compare that back to the traditional DHA and if they're, you know, of similar kind of consequence or similar sort of risk, um, but you can dig in deeper to the using with your quantitative approach and, and make better decisions, do better risk ranking and that sort of stuff. That's really where the use is. But you just you don't want to kind of plug and play the equations. Just like when you're when you're doing a physics test, you need to stop and think, does this answer make make sense with our observations? If you don't feel safe walking in the facility, chances are the, the quantitative model should suggest that that's an unsafe behavior. And that's one of the things that we did, you know, is when, when we developed for the first time, we did do a full um, verification and validation study on it to make sure it was performing, you know, and reflective of real world conditions. But one of the things in actually presenting presenting this concept to an, uh, to an AHJ, who ultimately should be approving it, sometimes you're probably going to have to educate them. I think that's one of the key things to highlight is is look if if this facility was really operating in an unsafe way you know you would you would expect to see this the equipment would be operated this way people would be here and you can set that up and show them look this is what this is what our results would would tell you the same model with this this configuration that we know is dangerous we're showing you that the risk is unacceptable but let's look at how they're actually doing it look at what they're what they've implemented look at what's being done and you see that this is extremely low risk even though they're not applying, you know, two or three of these prescriptive requirements the NFPA standards would require, that's why we're, you know, we're supportive of this alternate approach. And it gives you the tools to be able to do that in a very defensible way and have a conversation. And if the AHA is like, well, what would happen if you added this additional safeguard? Show me what it would do anyway. And you can add them and show that the risk barely moves because whatever that those safeguards are intended to address aren't really helping to... Um, mitigate something that's a real physical hazard in that system so it's a very powerful approach yeah and i i like 
I like the approach of being able to have the model at the end of the day, you can kind of look at it and say, okay, this is how we came to this approach. This is how sensitive it is to these different inputs. And this is how sensitive it is to these recommendations, because you're right. You're right. Well, you're right in all accounts, but a couple of specific ways that I, I think you're right are, you know, doing something just for the sake of doing it, but that doesn't move the needle on safety. That's not really that helpful, regardless of, of what box it checks. And then another one is you get a lot of, even internationally, if, if a country is implementing a new standard, they may take a little bit of MPA, they may take a little bit of ATEX, they may take a little bit of UK standard. Um, and we just talked about this with uh, Nicholas Kitzhofer in, in episode 24 of the podcast, where they're, they're sort of working on the Chinese national standards now. Um, but you take all these, mix them in a pod, and then you throw in some of the uh, personal opinion of the person writing it in that country, and you, you end up with standard soup where something may not make sense when combined in a, in a one way with another thing. And then trying to, trying to combine them all is becomes quite, quite difficult. Um, when at the end of the day, it's about making the facility safe. One thing I do want to say, just, uh, you know, so our listeners are clear is that, you know, one thing I think is very interesting that we saw come out of some of the analysis that we've done is where you do truly have an inherently dangerous situation and you apply what would be prescriptively required in the NFPA standards, it's extremely effective at reducing risk. So, I mean, the standards work, right? Uh, and, and clearly, you know, if you're doing that, uh, where you know where you have a known hazard kind of circling back to what you said before, it's, it's known that those, that those safeguards make your facility safer. So it was pretty cool to see that actually come out in the numbers and kind of confirm what you knew that the, uh, the standards committees uh, do a pretty good job. <laughs> Well, and it's the it's accumulation of expertise and knowledge, and the, you've done 300 DHAs and combined. The people on the committee have probably done three, you know, three thousand or or whatever. So it's just that that combination of knowledge. So, kind of in summary, this has been a, a really great conversation. I learned a lot, even even more than I have from the the other interviews we've done on DHA, especially about this topic that I'm not that familiar with, which is this quantitative risk modeling. So we. We went through and talked about traditional DHAs. We recommended the guidelines for combustible dust hazard analysis book there, um, which you can, again, you'll be able to get that dustsafetyscience.com slash 26. We talked about what do you do when the prescriptive standards can't be implemented, which can happen a lot of time in these older facilities, and what are the options you have. We talked about difficulties with risk ranking and prioritization as being one of the advantages of, of using a performance-based or risk-based approach. We talked about some of the differences between performance and risk-based. And then we started talking about the difference between qualitative and quantitative risk. And we spent quite a long time with, a, with an example in there talking with Mark about the quantitative risk side and, and what that means. So hopefully if, if people are listening to this, it'll be a little less similar to myself where it feels a little bit foreign talking about it. Hopefully we can um, improve those communications. So Mark, I want to say thank you again. I have a tremendous, I think we'll get a tremendous amount of value for the, the listeners from this interview. Um, and I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. It's been very, very helpful for me. It was my pleasure, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. And I think I hear my son screaming in the background, so we, we better cut the interview off here. <laughs> hopefully we can get you on again, and uh, hopefully that's not so loud that, uh, that the listeners will hear. And if they do, we're at the end of the day, so he's, he's getting hungry. <laughs> I understand. All right. Thanks, Mark, and I really appreciate having you, you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. That was a really great interview with Mark, understanding the different types of dust hazard analysis. What tools do we have in our toolkit when we're trying to understand 
quantify um, and rank and prioritize the different risks associated with combustible dust. We'll include Mark's email in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 26. So if you want to connect with him and talk more about the different approaches that he used, um, his experience in this area, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we also mentioned a couple of resources that you can also get in the show notes, like the the textbook guidelines for combustible dust hazard analysis. And I use the word textbook um, loosely here in the sense that it's not a real big book. It's not something that's uh, going to take forever to get through. It's actually a, a really useful resource in the space. If you have any comments or any questions or any topics you'd like to see covered in the podcast, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ASK, ask, and you can record them there, either text-based or um, by leaving us an audio message, and we'll bring somebody on, a subject matter expert, to cover that topic in the future on the podcast. As always, I appreciate you listening. I hope you have a great week ahead, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing in industries handling combustible dust to make them safer every day. Mm-hmm.